there isn't a single one of us who isn't tempted regularly to lie. From a biblical perspective, in reality, every single word that comes out of our mouths is either the truth or it is a lie. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series in Matthew chapter 5. It's titled, Radical Truthfulness. Unfortunately, through modern technology, the catastrophic sin of lying has manifested itself on a global and national stage for all the world to see. Lying is also pervasive in smaller settings, like the workplace or even at home. In fact, lying has been a problem since Genesis 4, when Cain lied to God. The truth is there isn't a single person that can escape the temptation to lie. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands that we as Christians pursue radical truthfulness. And according to Jesus, if you're one of his followers, you're characterized by truthful speech. Tom, why is it absolutely critical then for Christians to always speak truthfully? You know, Bill, the foundational reason is because of the nature of our God. The scripture's clear that God never lies. Titus 1.1 says that God cannot lie. Isaiah 53 says that there was no deceit found in the mouth of our Lord. In John 14, verse 17, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. So clearly, our God is a God of truth. And if we want to be like Him and like our Lord Jesus, then this is going to include how we speak. If we're truly in the kingdom of God, then we're to pursue a righteousness that's greater than that of the Pharisees. That's really Jesus' point in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, that even how we speak is to be radically different. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. You may be surprised, but I, I enjoy occasionally a mystery. And I like Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie's um, detective. At the end of a dramatized version of one of Agatha Christie's short stories, Hercule Poirot has an interesting interchange with his sidekick, Hastings. In the mystery that they have just solved, a a beautiful young woman had disguised herself as an old, ugly nurse. And after the mystery was solved and the criminal had been apprehended, Poirot was enjoying, you know, the victory, and Hastings was still deeply troubled about something. And Poirot asked him what it was exactly that was troubling him, and Hastings answered this way. He said, there she was, a glamorous young woman, but with a bit of a wig and a few bits of makeup, she could transform herself into that dowdy hag of a nurse. Poirot said, yes, it was indeed very well done, Hastings. Hastings went on to say, but if a woman can do that one way, she can do it the other. Then where are you? Poirot's classic response was, at the beginning of wisdom, mon ami. (laughs) The point that Poirot was making with a touch of humor was that the world 
as we know it is characterized by dishonesty. That is a fact of life on this planet. Lying has reached epidemic proportions in our society from subtle deceit to outright lying. You see examples of it in every area of life. Look at it on the global scale. Governments sign treaties with other countries that they have absolutely no intention of keeping. It's all posturing. In our own country, politicians make promise after promise to get our votes, some of which they have no plans to keep, and most of which they will not keep out of political expediency. George Stephanopoulos, former advisor to President Bill Clinton, said in a television interview, the president has kept all the promises he intended to keep. (laughs) Think about that one. I can promise you, by the way, that was simply not just true of President Clinton. That's a reality in our public life. The last few years, there have been politicians and famous sports figures and others who make bold lies even while they are under oath, committing perjury, apparently with, without the slightest twinge of conscience. The world of commerce is filled with dishonesty. There is deliberate false advertising in order to make a sale. There are deceptive marketing practices that bag of potato chips doesn't just, uh, isn't just filled with air in order to keep the chips that are in there from breaking, but to communicate to you that you're getting more than you're actually receiving. Over the last couple of years, we have watched contract negotiations for two major sports leagues play out on the national stage. And those negotiations have been filled with misleading statements and in some cases, outright lies. The catastrophic sin of lying doesn't remain on the global stage or on the national stage or on even the stage of commerce, but unfortunately it intrudes even into the home. Couples stand at their weddings and make solemn promises of lifelong commitments, and then several years later they find an excuse to break them. And those who remain married struggle with honesty as well. Surveys tell us that close to 30% of married couples lie to their spouses about how much money they spend and why. Everyday life and normal conversations are filled with rampant dishonesty. Let's just admit to one another right here at the beginning that not a single one of us is exempt from this indictment. There isn't a single one of us who isn't tempted regularly to lie. We're talking to someone, having a good conversation, and suddenly we find ourselves saying something that's not the whole truth. It's either a flat contradiction of the truth, or it's a half-truth, or there's a subtle shading of the truth meant to mislead that person in some way. And somehow, we convince ourselves that although we're not really telling the truth, we're not lying either. But in reality, listen carefully, from a biblical perspective, in reality, every single word that comes out of our mouths is either the truth or it is a lie. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, John writes, No lie is of the truth. He's making a large statement in a particular context it's applied, but he's saying that truth and lies are mutually exclusive. 
Everything we say is either the truth or it's a lie. This is a huge problem on this planet. Where did it start? Well, the first lie that was ever made in the universe came from the lips of Satan as he energized the serpent. In Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Satan is the ultimate source of all lying. When you and I lie, ultimately that can be traced back to Satan himself. That's why in John chapter 8, our Lord called Satan the father of lies. The first human lie came in Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall. It was the bold-faced lie that Cain made to God himself. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother, whom, of course, Cain had just killed? And Cain said to God, imagine the audacity of this. Cain says to God, I do not know. Since that time, lying has become characteristic of all fallen human beings. Over and over again, the Scripture makes this point. Let me just give you a few examples. Psalm 52, verse 3, you love falsehood more than speaking what is right. In Psalm 58, 3, speaking of evil rulers and all humanity, the psalmist writes, the wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies, that's the wicked, go astray from birth. To be wicked is to speak lies. To be a sinner is to be a liar. And it happens from the womb from birth. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 5, as Jeremiah indicts Israel of his time, he says, everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. In Romans chapter 1 verse 29, as Paul indicts all of humanity for our sins, one of the sins he lists is this, He says they are filled with all deceit. In Romans chapter 3, verse 13, as he begins to indict every single human being, listen to what Paul says about every single one of us before Christ. He says, their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep on deceiving. It is absolutely rampant, characteristic of all fallen human beings. Even though it is so common that not a single one of us is exempt from it, it is still something that God absolutely hates. Listen to what God's perspective is about the sin of lying, something we take lightly. We watch television programs or movies or sitcoms, and we watch people lie, and we laugh about those lies. But here's God's perspective. Psalm 5, verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of deceit. Proverbs 6, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And number two on the list is a lying tongue. Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. In other words, It's something God utterly abhors. He hates it. He finds it repulsive. 
In fact, lying is a damning sin. Proverbs 12, 19 says, Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Proverbs 19.9, he who tells lies will perish. Let me show you this. Uh, This theme comes back up at the very end of Scripture. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, John the Apostle is talking about the, the new heaven and the new earth. And in that context, he says something very disturbing. Revelation 21, verse 7. He says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Those are true believers. And then he says, verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters. Wow, what a list. And then he adds this, and all liars. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look down in verse 27 of the same chapter, speaking of that that heavenly city that's going to be prepared in the future. He says, verse 27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, the person who as a pattern and habit of life practices lying is not written in the Lamb's book of life and will never come into that city. Chapter 22, verse 15, again, speaking of that heavenly Jerusalem, that city that God will make, celestial city. He says, outside of it are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone, without exception, who loves and practices lying. This is a very, very serious sin. God abhors it, he hates it, he finds it repulsive, it is contrary to his very nature, who who is truth, and those who practice it will never be in his presence. In fact, when a person comes to truly know God, for the first time, truth begins to really matter to them. Listen to David in Psalm 101, verse 7. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Psalm 119, verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood. Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 13, 5, a righteous man hates falsehood. In Proverbs 30, verse 8, Agur prays, keep deception and lies far from me. Although lying and dishonesty is an inherent part of fallen human nature, the nature that each of us inherited from his parents or our parents, our Lord wants something else for us. And in the next paragraph that we come to in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us as his disciples to what Ken Hughes calls radical truthfulness. Radical truthfulness. 
Let's look at it together. Go back with me now to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. Let's see what our Lord has to say about this issue of truthfulness. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, just to remind you of the context, this is the fourth illustration that Jesus gives of how the righteousness of his true disciples surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. In the first illustration, in verses 21 to 26, Jesus shows the relationship between anger and the sixth commandment against murder. In the second illustration, in verses 27 to 30, He shows the relationship between lust and the seventh commandment against adultery. In the third illustration that we finished up last week in verses 31 to 32, he shows the relationship between unbiblical divorce and the seventh commandment against adultery. Here in the fourth illustration, the one we come to today, as we unfold it and unpack it, I think you'll see this. He shows us here the relationship between truthfulness in our speech and both the third commandment against taking God's name in vain and the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. The point that Jesus is making in the text we just read together is that he demands radical truthfulness from his disciples. Now, as he's done with the other illustrations we've already looked at, Jesus begins here by looking at the scribes' flawed interpretation of the Old Testament command. And in this case, of course, specifically the command for truthfulness. Before we look at the text in detail, I need to first define a couple of key terms that are used. You'll notice the word in verse 33, vow, and in verse 34, oath. Those are key words that this week and next you need to understand. Those are good English translations of the Greek words, so let's just make sure we know what the English words vow and oath mean. The word vow is defined by the shorter Oxford Dictionary as a solemn promise made to God. Obviously, we can make some human vows. We talk about the wedding vows, etc., but By and large, in biblical terminology, a vow is a solemn promise made to God. That's a vow. Oath is defined this way in the shorter Oxford Dictionary. And again, this is the same concept in the Greek word. A solemn declaration as to the truth of something, often invoking God, a deity, etc. So you see the difference? A vow is a solemn promise made to God. An oath is where you swear something is true, usually against a deity or sometimes against your own life. An oath is really a form of self-cursing. It's asking God to testify that what you're saying is the truth, with the understanding that if it's not true, 
You're asking God, inviting God to bring catastrophe into your life. In the old days of jurisprudence, a, a juror would get up to give testimony in the courtroom. He would lay his hand on the Bible and he would say, uh, do you swear to tell the truth, or I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, what? So help me God. That was both an invitation for God to assist him in telling the truth, and it was an invitation for God to bring desperate circumstances into his life if he violated the truth. That's an oath. So with the understanding of those two words, we need to consider then how the scribes had misunderstood what the Old Testament teaches specifically about this issue of truthfulness. So first of all, they misinterpreted what the Old Testament has to say about truthfulness by focusing primarily on perjury. On perjury. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows. Now I need to emphasize again, Jesus is not disagreeing with the Old Testament here. That's the reason for that unusual expression, you have heard that the ancients were told. He's not disagreeing with the Old Testament. As with the other examples we've looked at, he is disagreeing with the scribes and rabbis' interpretation of the Old Testament. We've already seen that in the previous examples. This is very clear if you look down in verse 43 in the final illustration he uses. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, that's the Old Testament, and hate your enemy. That's not the Old Testament. So clearly he is taking issue here, not with the Old Testament itself, but with what the scribes and Pharisees have made the Old Testament say. And this is clear, by the way, because the quotation in verse 33 can't be found in the Old Testament. It is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. Instead, just as they did with divorce, they have taken two different ideas found in different places in the Old Testament, and they have placed them together as their own summary of the teaching of Scripture. Now let's look at what they taught. Look at the first expression, you shall not make false vows. That's one Greek word. It's used only two other places in Scripture. It's used in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Bible that was used in the first century. It's used there in Zechariah 5.3 where it's translated to swear in the idea of a courtroom. And it means to swear falsely, to perjure oneself. In 1 Timothy 1.10 the word occurs and there it is translated perjurers. The leading Greek lexicon defines this word as to swear that something is true when one knows it is false, to swear falsely, to perjure oneself. This is what they were teaching. This was their summary of the Old Testament teaching about truthfulness. Just don't perjure yourself. Now, where did they get that? Well, it's likely that they got it by combining two of the Ten Commandments together into one idea. In Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment, you remember the third command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The ninth commandment says, you shall not bear witness against your neighbor, false witness against your neighbor. In other words, you're not to lie about your neighbor on the stand. 
What the rabbis did was take those two different commands and join them together and say they're essentially addressing the same thing. They had decided the primary focus of those two commandments was not taking God's name in vain when you were under oath by bearing false witness, by perjuring yourself. In other words, they had made truthfulness really about avoiding perjury. And if you did that, you were okay. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Radical Truthfulness. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music